Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I want to thank you so much for being with us for this episode. A half century ago, Marvin Gaye dropped a classic song, Inner City Blues. In it, he sang the following phrase, inflation, no chance to increase finance. I'd sing it, but I haven't been able to sing since my voice changed when I was a little kid. Lo and behold, this is exactly where we are. With inflation in the U.S. at a 40-year high of 7.5% for the month of January. That means higher prices at the pump, in your electric bill, and at the supermarket, among other places. Now economists expected inflation to rise last year, especially in relation to the 2020 numbers. Unfortunately, the Biden administration painted an overly rosy picture of where inflation would be in 2022. Ironically, the prices of baked goods like cookies, bread, and the like were the leaders in making food prices rise. Rapid price increases in the basics of American life hit hardworking people especially hard, and I get a sense that many Americans think Washington is tone deaf to their pain. Economists, at least the most optimistic of them, say inflation will cool as the year progresses, as the effects of the COVID pandemic start to wear off. They could be right, but the U.S. could be just a variant away from another frightening pandemic cycle, which would again fuel inflation. Don't think for a minute what's happening in the States is in any way unique. All over the world, prices rise do not just to the pandemic, but to the supply chain issues that it has created. Those issues create a knock-on effect where, for example, car parts can't get to factories, production slows, and even the price of used cars goes up. The president can point to some bright spots, for sure, including economic growth, wage hikes, and declines in unemployment claims. Yet all this may fall on deaf ears if prices keep rising, especially if they keep rising at the current rate. Usually, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates when inflation surges, but some economists are asking if that alone will be enough. With the midterm elections looming, Republicans will in all probability try to pin higher prices on Democrats. It just may stick unless, again, inflation cools. President Biden says his administration is using, quote, every tool at our disposal to cool inflation. He needs to make clear to the public what he actually is doing. Inflation may level off or even decline due to factors beyond his control, but he has to sell to the public that he gets their pain and that he's doing something concrete about it. He must also get ahead of the strong desire across the country to get back to something like normalcy, which leads to another issue. Mask mandates. They're dropping like flies, even in some states like New York and New Jersey, where those mandates were among the toughest. Again, this desire to live pre-pandemic lives is not unique to the U.S., We'll get to the Canadian trucker protest later on in this episode, but mask mandates are an interesting study because although most people supported them early on in the pandemic, there has always been a minority of people who pushed back against them, even in situations where events were indoors and people were in close proximity to each other. Ironically, the 
abrupt dropping of mask mandates is starting in schools in some cases. Just as ironic is the fact that the states announcing either a total or a partial end to the mandates are states led by Democrats. They're starting to say their constituents have to learn to live with the virus. Now, got to ask yourself, where have you heard that before? This is strikingly similar to what some of their GOP counterparts have been saying since, since much earlier in the life of the pandemic. Even before, in some cases, vaccines were readily available. People say, well, you have to get used to it. You have to get, because, uh, and you know, their, their big thing was the economy. Oh, we can't let the economy slow down because of this pandemic. Now, it seems as though some states, not all, but some states that followed that path had higher numbers of deaths. Not all of them, but some of them. And the fact of the matter is that to them, it's ironic that the Democrats are now where they were. As I've said before, we could be just one variant away from another wave of panic, sickness, lockdowns, and God forbid, death. If the past two years have taught us anything, it should be that coronavirus follows no predictable path. While it's true that the Omicron variant has proved to be less lethal than its predecessors, there is absolutely no guarantee the next variant, if there is one, won't be more virulent and vaccine resistant than the last. Scientists don't know, and politicians know even less. The potential for U-turns on the veiling political wisdom is as much a constant as differing scientific advice. Recent polling says an increased number of Americans think the pandemic will never get under control. In the face of this, there is support for both mask and social distancing guidelines, a majority if you're to believe a recent Monmouth University poll. That support, however, is diminishing. Also on display, is the difference between Democratic governors eager to move on from the emergency phase of the pandemic and President Biden, who wants to move more cautiously. Ironically, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the very model of caution, and as a result, a whipping boy for the right, now says this may be a good time to get back to normalcy. I personally have never thought mask wearing and social distancing were the first steps toward fascism, and I've heard people actually say that. There are amateur scientists who feel there's no evidence that mask wearing helps keep people safe from COVID. To them, I say, okay, fine. Don't wear a mask indoors, but then don't complain if you get sick. Up next, why are so many elected officials being threatened? Who told some people it's okay to threaten to kill somebody because you don't agree with their views? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Threats against members of Congress are surging over the past five years. 75 people have been charged with threats against elected officials. That may not seem like much, 
but consider there have been, among other things, an active plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, and of course, January 6th, and we haven't seen the end of the number of indictments, convictions, and guilty pleas that flow from that. Keep in mind as well that those 75 indictments are out of a total of 9,600 documented threats last year alone. So what is going wrong? We do know this. The threats come from Republicans toward Democrats, Democrats against Republicans, and interestingly, Republicans threatening other Republicans. There were some that had no partisan leanings at all. Yet we should make no mistake, political violence has been part of the fabric of the nation since just after its inception. I'd refer you to the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr in 1804. Yes, it started over an alleged insult at a dinner party, but its roots were deeply political. Fast forward two centuries later, and we see political threats surging during the presidency of Donald Trump. The majority were made by Republicans, but like we said, some were GOP versus GOP. And to what do we owe this? As the RNC would say, do we owe it to legitimate political discourse? I submit the coarsening of American political dialogue and discourse predates the Trump presidency. Yet the number of calls investigated by the Capitol Police has increased fourfold since he was in office. I've always wondered what those who make threats to kill members of Congress think they're accomplishing by doing so. Remember January 6th, there were some overt threats, not just to kill members of Congress, but also to hang the Vice President of the United States. So what, what is it exactly they think they're going to accomplish by doing this? Maybe, as some who have wound up in court put it, they're blowing off steam or letting their anger get the better of them. Many have in common listening to the fringe voices of talk radio or other media that gets rich by spreading false conspiracies to a public all too willing to believe them without doing their own research. When I worked in talk radio, I was subject to death threats. I was young then and probably acted foolishly. In hindsight, I acted like an idiot in daring them to come get me. I used to get mine, threats that is, by mail or by phone. Now, there are many ways to threaten people via social media, and some are taking full advantage. Sad to say, I'm not sure there's a way to lower the political temperature to the point that threats become outliers. Let's hope so. Speaking of threats, we've talked recently about the Russian threat to invade the Ukraine. Recently, also, the West has upped the ante, telling Russia's Vladimir Putin all hell will break loose if an invasion happens. Both the US and the UK have told their nationals in the Ukraine to evacuate, and quickly. Western angst, as we've discussed before, has to do with 130,000 Russian troops massed along the border with Ukraine. No one can get anywhere near what's going on in Putin's head, but one thing is for sure. Putin appears ready to commit troops to achieve his goal of keeping Ukraine out of NATO and expanding his sphere of influence near Russia's borders. Because that's what this is really all about from Putin's perspective. Now, is NATO prepared to throw down? 
if Putin does send his troops across the border? The short answer is no, they're not. That means advantage Putin. One thing I really find curious, the West's total emphasis through this entire standoff has been on invasion and war. Has anyone thought to ask what would happen if Putin, for example, commissioned hackers to disrupt Ukraine's financial system? Suppose a hacker wiped out the computers that handle the nation's banking system. He could do it and then deny it. And who could prove it? And they wouldn't have to fire a shot. They wouldn't have to send a soldier over the border. And I'm not saying this because I have some empirical knowledge. I'm not a guru or a seer or any of that. I barely know how to operate a computer, but I do know that Putin has at his disposal people who can disrupt the financial system of virtually any country on earth if he chooses to. Now, and by the way, and still have plausible deniability. Now, the media that have framed this as a purely military standoff, I think are partially missing the point. And while we're at it, what exactly are the draconian sanctions the West threatens Putin with? While the Russians aren't as embedded in the U.S. and sanctions might hurt, Europe is quite another matter. And so too is the U.K., which has been saber-rattling the loudest and can do the least to hurt the Russian oligarchs who have huge sums invested in that country. If the West is smart, they'll watch their financial backs while trying to convince Putin to back off. Now, the other part of this is that these kinds of standoffs have a history. I was a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis when people thought we were getting ready to start World War III over the issue of ballistic missiles being stationed in Cuba at the behest of what was then the Soviet Union. We used to do drills covering our heads and getting out in the hallway. This was on like, like a bi-weekly basis. Or actually, I should say on a twice-weekly basis. And the bottom line is, they managed Khrushchev, who was the head of the Soviet Union at the time, backed off and decided not to station ballistic missiles in Cuba. But you go back further than that, and you see the, the concessions that were made in the name of diplomacy back in 1939 when Eng England thought that there was going to be no problem dealing with Germany and next thing you know World War II. So there have been successes and there have been failures in this kind of diplomacy and on one level again Putin has a lot at stake here. He can't exactly draw down all of these forces and then say, oops, sorry, my bad. That he cannot do. He's going to have to find a way to do this with some ability to declare victory. Again, if the West is smart, they'll watch their backs. And finally, Canadian truckers have crippled the country north of the border. What exactly do they want? Will their convoy blockage end? It looks like it may have already. And what's the next step? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. On January 22nd, a convoy of truckers left British Columbia in Canada headed for Ottawa, the capital. They were protesting a vaccine mandate requiring truckers coming from the U.S. to Canada to be vaccinated. At first, few on either side of the border paid attention. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at first called the, uh, called the truckers a small fringe minority. They were obviously a minority, but they suddenly began to have an impact far beyond their numbers. They started by blocking roads in and around Ottawa, but that was just the first step. The roadblocks spread to Toronto, Quebec City, and Calgary. They also blocked the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Ottawa, a key link for the automobile industry. Suddenly, supply chains, remember we talked about them earlier, supply chains were disrupted, auto plants cut back on shifts, and the Ambassador Bridge found itself not moving $300 million in goods per day. Life in the cities affected, in many cases, ground to a halt. The convoys have also been accused of harassing people on the street, and in some cases honking their horns for 16 hours a day. They certainly got the attention of Canadian authorities. Just this past weekend, law enforcement began closing down the tent cities where many of the protesters had been staying. In the end, their protest was disruptive, but it didn't achieve their stated goal of getting the Canadian government to roll back, roll back that is, vaccine mandates. By the end of this past weekend, most had dispersed and those who hadn't were subject to arrest, and some of them were. It looks as though their initial target has now widened, widened to include other far-right causes, such as, uh, and this is really interesting, the secession of the three westernmost provinces in Canada from the rest of the nation. One protest leader is an adherent to QAnon conspiracy theories and wants Justin Trudeau put on trial for treason over his COVID policies. And that's not all. There are noises that a similar truck convoy may be in its organizational stages in the good old USA. Similar protests have already sprung up in Australia and New Zealand. While these protests have been oriented toward the right wing, there may be a lesson or two to be learned by progressives about how to organize and fight back against the forces of voter suppression and right wing demagoguery. Who knows? Maybe progressives might even win a few. Now, nobody is in favor, and certainly I'm not in favor, of making uh, uh, cities end up, end up losing business because they can't use a bridge or they can't use certain streets. I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I don't want to see a city paralyzed. But I certainly am in favor of making progressive voices heard through action. That's right, through action. Action that has the effect of making people sit up and take notice. Maybe action needs to happen from our side for a change. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.